We read in John 11 that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And when Lazarus was quite ill, Martha and Mary sent an SOS call to the Lord. He whom thou lovest is sick. Wouldn't you have thought that Jesus would hurry down there post-haste? Bethany was about the nearest thing to a home that he had on earth, and the abode of Martha and Mary was precious too. And he loved them. And yet it says that he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so we waited two days before he even started. That's a strange turn of events. He waited. There is a love that tarries and a love that waits. If he had gone down there on first call, he would have healed the Lazarus. But by waiting two days, he raised him from the dead. And so they got a greater blessing by his delay than they ever would have had if he'd gone in a hurry. God often wants to give us a greater blessing than if he speeded to our aid. I wonder if there aren't some folks here tonight who have been inclined, like Martha and Mary, who, when Jesus finally did get there, said, If thou hadst been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This wouldn't have happened. Now, I don't know whether they were grumbling or whether they were merely stating the facts. The Bible scholars don't agree on that. But have you ever murmured, Lord, this wouldn't have happened if you come to my help when afraid if thou hadst been here and you're still wondering maybe why God didn't show up in the hour of your greatest need you sang in church just when I need him Jesus is near but he didn't break through that time and the heavens were as brass maybe you became resentful and you pouted a little with the Lord ever since because it didn't work, you thought. Well, the key to this whole thing is found in what Jesus said on the way down there. This sickness is not unto death, but that God may be glorified, that the Son of Man may be glorified, the Son of God may be glorified. This sickness not unto death, but Lazarus died. He passed away. What did he mean? Well, Jesus meant death is not the objective. This is not the main thing. It's not the end. It's a means to an end. It's going to serve a greater purpose. When my dear wife was quite ill a year and a half and more now ago, in my daily life, uh, I came across on May the 4th, 73, this very verse, this sickness is not unto death, but that the Son of God may be glorified. And I claimed it, and I put my hopes on it, and I leaned on it pretty heavily. And I said, this is, uh, this is going to be my verse. I believe God's going to raise her up. But he didn't. She died. What did that mean? I uh, was considerably shook up. We had a lot of prayer. She
she believed that God was going to heal her with an implicit childlike faith. But he didn't. And then I began to find out some things. I discovered that Oswald Chambers, who wrote that wonderful book, My Utmost for His Highest, got hold of the same verse in his last illness and dared to claim it. But he died. But his wife took his writings and had them published. And they went around the world and still do. And their blessing, which wouldn't have happened probably if he had lived. And when my wife passed away, uh, I uh, went through a new experience in my own life and wrote out of it the little book, Though I Walked Through the Valley. And I've written 31 books, but I never wrote one that had such a response as that, and still has, and has surprised me, and I can't explain it. I've never had so many letters from all over the country, and still do. And I wrote a piece in Moody Monthly, things I've learned in the dark, that I've been hearing from every direction, and the Haven of Rest Quartet out in Hollywood sent me a tape last week they'd made on the basis of that article. And in from all directions, things have come out of that that never would have. And so her sickness was not unto death. That is to say, that wasn't the main purpose in it. That was incidental. God had something beyond all that, and that's what we're reading right here. And so whatever happens in your life when a loved one dies or you lose your health or your business, that's not the end. It's not the objective. God only has one objective, and that is that everything may turn out to the glory of God. That's what God saved you for anyhow. He didn't save you to make you happy. He saved you to make you holy, and you were predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's what you were saved for. Most church members have never caught on to that. They've been saved to become like Jesus, and some of them aren't any more like him 25 years after they joined the church than they were when they joined. Some of them even backslide, less like him. Are you more like him now than you were? God saved you to conform you to the image of his son. I don't see that the majority of our church members show any growth in grace. They get into church like you join the junior order or the boy scouts or something else and you're in and that's it. And they don't understand apparently that something's supposed to happen afterwards. Old Dr. Ironside used to tell about a dear lady who every time they had a testimony meeting, she'd get up and start all 40 years ago, so and so. And he said, I finally said, lady, hasn't anything happened since? Do you have to look back 40 years to find some evidence of the blessing and power of God in your life? Beloved, God saved us for his glory. The Bible is full of the glory of God. I marveled as I looked yesterday and today in the concordance to the word and its uh, affiliate words, glory, glorious, glorify, and all the rest of it. You will be amazed. Why, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his hand to work. 
a day like this in springtime is enough to revel in the glory of God in creation. The firmament, the heavens, Teddy Roosevelt lived at the Sagamore Hill. I visited the old home a few years ago when I was preaching in Hackensack, New Jersey. And uh, he had a distinguished friend to visit him one night. He led this friend out on the lawn, a beautiful, beautiful lawn around the home. And they stood and looked up at the sky a while. And then Teddy Roosevelt said, well, I think we're down to our right size. Let's go back in the house. I think I know what he meant. If you have seen the glory of the mountains, the Alps, I'll never forget riding all day through Switzerland, looking at the Jungfrau and Mont Blanc, those majestic peaks. And then, of course, the Rockies and their sublimity. I'm not forgetting my favorite, the Blue Ridge the Blue Ridge Parkway, or the Ozarks where I spent some blessed time, two spring times, or the Adirondacks where I like to go in conferences, and the, the glory of God's all over the place. And it shows his handwork. And then my Bible tells me that man is the image and glory of God. That's the way he was made. That's the way God made him. He's fallen now and ruined the sin. But that's the way it started. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that we have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then we're told in John eleven forty that if we believe, we'll see the glory of God. And we're told, of course, in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And after we see the glory of God in salvation, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with open face beholding the glory of God are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as to the Spirit of the Lord. And we are hearing, we've heard already tonight, it's been referred to in Philippians 2.11, that the day is coming when every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, I read in Revelation 21, 11, that the new Jerusalem will descend out of heaven having the glory of God. They don't need any light in the system over there because Revelation 21, 23 tells me that the glory of God enlightened me. Now those are only just a few samples. The book's full of it. It just fairly beams with the glory of God. And even your own death can be to the glory of God because Jesus told Peter, he said, when you were a young man, you went where you pleased. When you grow old, they'll take you where you don't want to go. He described practically for him the manner of his execution. And he says, this he spake signifying 
by what death he should glorify God. So you glorify God even in dying. And one time Jesus stood and said something that doesn't sound like him at first thought. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus troubled. And what shall I say? Jesus not knowing what to say. But that's what he said, John 12, 28, then he turned around and said, Father, glorify thy name. Whenever you get to the place that your soul's troubled, you don't know what to say, why that's what to say. Father, glorify thy name. Dr. Torrey has said that the chief purpose of prayer is that God may be glorified in the answer. That's helped me more than any definition I've ever heard about prayer. The chief purpose of prayer is not to get what you want or even what you need. The chief purpose of prayer is to glorify God in the answer, whatever it is. You may not get what you wanted. God may not answer you. Whatever happens, let me remind you that God makes some things happen and he lets some things happen, but nothing ever just happens. Never. They may, we use the word, they may happen in his directive will or they may happen in his permissive will, but nothing that's ever taken place in your life has happened. Just happened. Fanny Crosby could have been bitter and cynical and resentful. When she was a baby, they poured the wrong kind of eye drops into her eyes and blinded her. She lived to be 90 odd years old. And she could have said, why did this have to happen to me? I'm sure she must have prayed for God to have mercy on her, maybe for a miracle, I don't know, but she didn't get it. And she might have felt, if thou hadst been there, Lord, when they poured those drops in my eyes, why didn't you do something? I tell you, if you look around at the misery and wretchedness of this world today, you'll feel like asking God, why? Why don't you why don't you do something today? Where are you? If you're omniscient, you know all about it. If you're omnipotent, you can do something about it. Why don't you interfere today and intervene? You moved through a children's hospital and looked at those poor little bodies, old twisted, deformed children, retarded children. You can come out of there without saying, my God, why? Something wrong with you. You can go to an old folks home and look at those poor vegetables who can't live or die either one. Pray to God you'll never be like that. You come out saying, why? Or if you have watched a dear one die as I did and sat for two days and held a hand when she's already dead except the machine kept her heart going and didn't even resemble herself until folks came and thought they were in the wrong room when they came to visit. And you've looked at all that for two days and you said, huh? Huh? Well, you can do that. And you can say, Lord, if you'd been there the night we had the prayer meeting, if you would intervene, this wouldn't have been. John Bunyan could have sat in jail and said, Lord, why do I have to have this? I've lived for you all my life and ended up in the jail. 
And I think of that dear man whose wife and three daughters were having a trip to Europe. Years ago, the ship ran into an awful storm and went down. He got a message from his wife. He said, I was rescued with the children are all. And he sat there just numb, paralyzed for a little bit. And then he reached out for a pencil and a piece of paper and wrote it. When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast told me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It takes a lot of grace to write something like that when you've just had a message. One of my preacher friends in South Carolina, wonderful man of God, took his own life some months ago when he went out of his mind, hanged himself in the hospital, and his dear widow wrote a letter to me. I sent her my book, and the other day I was at Gardner Webb College, and she came over there where her son's in school, hoping to hear a word that would help her. And I said, I'm going to preach on why. <clears throat> and I believe it did help her. I have a preacher friend, Bill Piper, who he and his wife were touring the Holy Land, and their bus ran into a truck and killed her right before his eyes about a year and a half or so ago, and nearly killed him. He didn't even know how hurt he was. He told me the other day, he came to hear me preach in Greenville, South Carolina. He came up to meet me, and I went down to meet him. We didn't say a word. We just hugged each other in front of the whole crowd because you don't think of anything to say at the time like that. There wasn't anything to say. You have to go through something like that to know. <clears throat> I've always tried to comfort people, but I didn't know how except to give them the word, which is the best thing, but you can't speak out of experience if you haven't been there. Some of God's people leave this world under dark and absolutely unexplainable circumstances that don't make sense and for which we have no answer at all. Some die in horrible agony. You turn over to Hebrews 11 and you have a perfect uh, setting forth of that principle. I read there in the 32nd verse, Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrote righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. My, what a great crowd that was. Wouldn't you like to have been with that bunch of overcomers? But right in the middle of all that, the very next words are, and others didn't do so. Others were tortured. They didn't march roughshod over everything. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment, were stoned and sawn asunder. Think of that. Tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, wandered in deserts and mountains, 
and dense and caves of the earth. Well, what went wrong there? How come that crowd didn't get along like this? I don't know. Then you don't eat. And I heard Dr. Claypool of Louisville, pastor of one of the great churches there, got a tape the other day of the sermon he preached after he found out his eight-year-old daughter had leukemia. She's died since. And I heard that man pour out his heart. He said, I don't know the answers. I don't know why. But one thing is certain. How we leave this world is purely instrumental. It's a matter of secondary importance in the sight of God. It's not the end. It's only means to the end. This sickness is not unto death, but that Son of Man be glorified thereby. Now God hasn't forgotten us in such times because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And nothing's ever lost if you're in God, not a thing. No prayer you ever prayed is lost. No tear you ever shed is lost if you're in Christ. Not one thing's ever lost. Jesus said he came down here that I should lose nothing. You don't lose your loved ones. I haven't lost my dear one. I know where she is. I'm, you haven't lost anything when you know where it is. Nothing's lost. They'll be raised in new bodies and promoted to heavenly service. His servants shall serve him there. There are no untimely deaths. I hear about so-and-so died of an untimely death. Nobody ever did that. Say, well, he was so young and had so many years. Why didn't God take him? Well, my friend, he's not through with him. We talk like death chops off everything, and that's the end of it, not at all. God will perfect that which concerns us, and he which hath begun a good work in your performance. This sickness is not unto death. And then I was reading today in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Neither he that planteth nor he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. That's all that's anything. Nothing else is anything, Paul said. We preachers are not anything. The only thing that matters is God. Now God lays his workers aside. Like the carpenter does his tools at the end of the day. He lays some aside because they're castaways and he can't use them anymore. Others because they're old and spent. A preacher who once swayed multitudes fades out in seclusion. I think of one of our great evangelists who in his last days didn't have much preaching to do and it was sad for him. But he said, I've learned that God uses us and then lays us aside. I don't understand it, don't explain it. Some go in full bloom of early years. All that matters is that the work goes on. Now, we're not checkers on a checkerboard, impersonal things that God just moves around. He's our Father. But we serve our generation by the will of God, and then we fall on sleep and we're laid with our fathers. The planters and the builders come and go, and they're nothing. But God's everything. All that matters is to glorify Him. And if we're no more important than that, relatively, why we ought to be surprised. And if we're just the carpenter's tools, we that ought to humble us. And we ought to get along in church. The other day I was preaching in Arlington, Virginia for a week, right near that national cemetery. I walked all over it. Day after day, acres and acres and acres of graves of boys who never got to live out their lives. Oh, I, I won't forget that week in Arlington. 
But at the church, and we had a great time that week. The saints of the Lord came from all directions. And there was a Mennonite brother with his collar on, you know, backwards the way they wear it, but a dear soul. Took down the sermons every night, never missed a thing. And I'd come in, and he, he was over there all geared up to record it. And he brought a little track one night that blessed me so. I said, man, I've got to have this. I think it might convict some church pastors. Says that one time the carpenters too who's got together after the day's work had done had a little conference. Nobody there but them. But they were sort of out of sorts and fussy like a lot of churches. One of them got up and said, think we ought to put out Brother Hammer and he's just knocking all the time, makes so much noise. Somebody else said, well, I think we could dispense with Brother Gimlet. He's sort of insignificant. Anyhow, we won't know if we've lost him. Somebody else said, well, I don't like Brother Plain much because he's always on the surface and there's not much depth to it. Somebody else said, let's put out Brother Rue because he's always measuring everything. Somebody said, and I don't like Sister Sandpaper. Always rubbing folks the wrong way. And somebody said, I don't like Brother So. He's just back and forth. Got such a cutting edge. And they argued all night. The next morning, the carpenter came in and picked all of them up and started to work again. They got so ashamed. Next night, they said, we better get together because we are laborers together. And that's what we are. It might cure us if we could find that out. Don't you ever say, Lord, if you've been here. Jesus said to Mark, you, you're on the wrong end. It's not he, if I'd been here, if thou canst believe, thou shalt see the glory of God. Don't get iffy with the Lord. That man who had a demonized boy, you remember what he said to Jesus? If thou canst do anything, Jesus said, if thou canst believe. They were always saying things like, oh, Lord, if, if, if. He said, the only if, absolutely the only if is if you can believe. There aren't any other ifs. I get sometimes in Ichabod Memorial Church. Have you ever been in Ichabod Memorial? Well, you know what Ichabod means, don't you? You know that Eli's grandson was born when the country was in such trouble and his mother told him Ichabod because the glory is departing from Israel. I've seen churches over this country they ought to call them the Ichabod Memorial because the glory of God gone not been around that place in years and years. Some of them don't like it when I refer to that but that's exactly what they ought to be called. The glory is gone. I just get thrilled over that wonderful phrase, the glory of God. My old daddy was a good man. He should have been a preacher. God told him to preach, I think. He had two brothers who were preachers, one a Baptist, one a Methodist. He stood head and shoulders above the general run of the rural community where he lived. For years and years, he was superintendent of the Sunday school at little old Corinth Church. He didn't go into the ministry and always regretted it. But the preachers considered Brother Havner 
to be their right hand man. They always stayed at our house in the horse and buggy days. Always want to have one service a month, you know. One sermon, of course, usually they were long enough to last a month, but we only had one sermon. And Father kept the preacher. Don't you think that I have forgotten that the night in the winter time when the preacher would be there and the big fire was over there in the company room and Dad and the preacher would get together and talk about God. And Father wanted all the information he could get. I said any preacher had stayed at our house and paid for his bed and board. Because Father pumped him for all the Bible information that he could get. But he loved to talk about Jesus. He talked about it a while ago, singing about Jesus. And, so. and don't you think it didn't help this little boy to sit there and listen? It beat all the TV that he's heard since. Just talking about Jesus. He didn't have many books and he didn't have much help out there trying to live the Christian life. He didn't have radio and there are some things that would have helped him on that back in those first days. One sermon a month. But I remember one time that he got hold of one of Spurgeon's matchless sermons on the text, 1 Peter 5.10, who hath called us to his eternal glory. And that got hold of Dad so that, believe it or not, he sat down and copied that sermon. Now, I don't know why he copied it. It was there in print. But longhand, he copied that whole sermon. I suppose he thought if I'll put it down that way, maybe it'll get in the system a little better. Copied the whole sermon. Because he was so impressed by it that he wanted to get hold of it and never forget it. Because my father had a lifelong desire to live on higher ground. He wanted to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory. That's all they lived for. He used to say, I'm going to get up one sermon and preach it before I die. And I'd find outlines where he tried to write a sermon. But he never preached it. And after he died, I had a meeting in old car in the church, and I asked folks to get up and tell who'd led them to the Lord. It looked like a frame-up. looked like I'd done it on purpose. I didn't realize they began to get up all over the place. What was your father, Vance? Your father. <laughs> he led me down the aisle here way back when, and it was your father that spoke to me about Jesus. You know what I said under my breath? He did preach his son after all. He preached it. Father conceived it to be his business to glorify God. And when I started out as a boy to preach, he was the happiest man imaginable on the face of the earth. I can't explain all this psychologically. They said he made a preacher out of me. No, he didn't. They said he got up with sermons. No, he didn't. He went with me the first two or three years because it was only 12 years old. He took a great joy in it. And then later on, of course, in the teens, I wobbled some in my theology and got infatuated with some of the new notions and the blessing went out of my preaching and the joy went out of all. And I came back to my old home in the hills. 
had a church for a year and left it and came back to my own home in the hills. And that winter, father passed away and all he had was a grocery store and my mother and I tried to keep it and somebody robbed it and burned it down one night. Never got hold of the perpetrators of that crime. God was speaking to me and saying, if you will go back and preach what you did when you were a boy and get some of these highfalutin notions out of your head, I'll make a way for you. And I did, and he did. We made a deal. And I know that Father knows all about that because I don't take to these new explanations about that cloud of witnesses over there in Hebrews. I believe it just like it reads. Paul's talking about running a race down here, and I believe he's talking about that crowd in the grandstand, looking on. And I think Father must be delighted beyond all possible words because his prayers were answered. And not while he was, he might have said, Lord, what's the matter? Why can't he get going? But I, I'm still going. And I believe that He's found out that this lapse, this lapse in my enthusiasm, I was still preaching, but I didn't have any fire and blessing. It wasn't unto death, you might say. It was that God may eventually be glorified. Now, he couldn't understand that. He was rather sad in his last years. And I had only one brother, and he wasted the first half of his life. Wouldn't go to school. Sit around and pick a guitar all the time. Of course, that's got to be par for the course these days. But uh, anyhow, uh, he wasted the first half of his life. And then father, when father died, I had to come to, right along through that, got a hold of a book by, an old, by that great old Presbyterian, Gresham Machen, on Christianity and liberalism that jarred my joke, he please, practically, but woke me up to the folly of anything else but the straight word of God. I got back to preaching and my brother, I, he wasn't living right. I put my arm around him out in the, the store they built in the place of the old one was burned up that little shack that he was running. And we wept there together and he came back to the Lord and got his Bible out and talked the Bible class for years and years and years that his father had told him. He's a cripple. He had to hold a pencil this way and they had a big wide margin Bible and he never hid that Bible under the uh, counter of that story. He always had it on top. They knew where he stood. And there again a prayer was answered and I'm sure Father must have said, is he ever going to come to? But he's 83 now. Lives in the old house on top of the hill. I own it. Send him a little money every month. So him the other day I said, pray for him. He said, I do, every day of my life. And he said, well, <laughs> he said, if I'm not here next time, he said, the other day you know where I will be. So, you see, beloved, we get down too soon. We say, oh, Lord, why didn't you do something? And I want to tell you that the last year and a half, although I've been in the I've wept more in the last year and a half and been lonelier than I've ever been in all of these years. God refines gold in fire. That's where you refine gold. You don't 
refine it sitting around in some resort taking it easy. You may think, well, what are you doing over at the Longfellow house in this? Well, that's in it too after you get on the track, brother. God doesn't want you to look like a bum or live like one, but you've got to get to the place where you've been through the fire. God loves to make his children happy. And I'm doing what I always wanted to do and having a good time doing it. and don't know how much longer I will, but if you'll just come to the place, and I, at the beginning of 73, I wanted to know the Lord better. I said, I, I'm just, I haven't had much chastisement. I don't understand that. The Bible says if you don't have it, you're a bastard and not a son. I said, Lord, I haven't had any trouble. Very little sickness. My wife and I for 33 years have crossed the country and everything's just been good. And I said, the Bible says we have tested. And I said, at any cost, bring me to the place where I can sing, now the alone I seek, give what is best. But you better not pray that unless you want God to know. You're ready for God to take you up on it. You know how he took me up on it? He took her on the heaven. And that's the highest price that a man can pay if he really loves his wife. It's, a, it's the hardest thing can happen to you. What happens to me now is incidental. I've had it, and nothing any worse can happen. And that gives you a sort of a victory. But I found out, <laughs> I don't have any doubt now about being one of the children. Not after you've been through the furnace and the fire. But my friend, how many of you have ever got to that blessed place where you've said, Lord, no matter what it costs me, I want to get to the place that all I want is the glory of God. Now, he may take you up on it. And you may pay a big price, but it's worth it. Because you don't lose anything. If he takes a dear one, you're going to overtake them if they're in the Lord. You can't lose for winning. But you have got to get to the place where all you want is the glory of God. He works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The big question is not if you've been here, but if you can believe. I, I've given a testimony all over this country and that alone made it one of the best years I've ever had. God's given me more preaching than I can begin to do. And I've seen the wonder of that little book that they can't keep enough of them on stock. They've run out twice with the publishers. And that never happened before. And so God is saying this sickness was to death and yet it wasn't that it was unto all this. And something like that can happen to you. But you've got to get to the place where you are absolutely ready to say, Lord, I don't care what it costs. I want to get to the place where you're all that I want. And that dear song leader was right to be there, that young fellow down there up in Georgia. And he said, Brother Heavener, I don't believe we ever get to the place where we realize that Jesus is all we need until he's all we've got. 
and I thought now he said them out. And I got to thinking about it. You've got to get to the place where Jesus is all you have. Now, sometimes literally Paul was at that place. He, he said, having nothing and possessing all the things. Poor old Paul didn't have anything. Asked Timothy to send that old overcoat and those books down there. And that old damn dark jail. But he said, I possess all of them. He had everything in that book. That's the paradox of being a Christian. It's the most wonderful state of man can get into. The devil can't do a thing in the world. A man like that, the devil may offer you this and offer you that. You say, you, no, I've got everything. Then the devil gets mad and tries to take this away and that away. And the Christian says, you can't because it don't have anything. Now, what are you going to do with one man? God may take everything away like he did to Job, but he gave him back twice as much. Paul didn't get back anything. He sat around waiting for his head to be cut off. It was the last chapter with him. So I don't know how God's going to do it with you, and it's absolutely non-essential to know. If you can get to the place where it really doesn't matter much how we leave this world, if we're in the will of God, I'd love to go to heaven in my sleep. I'd like to go like some, like old Dr. Bell, Billy Graham, a father-in-law with. I'd like to go that way, but I may not. I, you can't dictate all that, but when you get to the place where he's all you have, you will find that he's all you need, and then you will find out one thing more. You will find out he's all you want. <clears throat> the Lord is my shepherd. A little girl, you know, said, she couldn't remember all of them. She just said, the Lord's my shepherd, that's all I want. Pretty good way to say it. Everything else is in Now, I just passed this on to you tonight because I felt like sometime this week I wanted to do it. And you've listened so well. And if I can speak to you out of loneliness and heartache that has been turned into joy, Although you still have the loneliness, don't misunderstand me. I can't explain it. You wouldn't know until you've been there. You feel like a man that's had an arm amputated and still feels his fingers. You're conscious that something's gone and yet not gone. And yet, I can spare you a lot of trouble if you've come to the place tonight, right now, where you'd be willing to not just bend your head, but your heart as well. Say, Lord, I want to get to that place where I can sing it and not lie. We've all lied when we've sung it. I have, I know. Once earthly joy I crave, so peace and rest. Now thee alone I see. Give what is best. Just give me anything you want to give me, Lord. And I won't wrong. Just give me what's best. We've got to give it. We're not about ready to pray that prayer until the Lord brings us to it through the pathway of suffering. It might be a good thing to end up with it tonight. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. We don't sing it much, 292. I'm not going to ask you to walk down the aisle tonight. The pastor can do whatever he wants to after he sang this song, but I, if many of you last night if you meant what you did last night, I don't believe in running down the aisle every night doing the same thing over. You know, you said it. If you meant it. If there were some who didn't come last night, of course. 
I'm going to let the Holy Spirit in you settle this thing as far as I'm concerned tonight. I want you to look at this. 292, that last, that middle verse says what I just quoted. Once earthly joy I crave, so peace and rest. Is that what you still want? Now thee alone I see. All you want is the Lord. Give what is best. 